<laughs> Thank you. So today <clears throat> we're going to continue our exploration of the Eightfold Path. And the, the so-called first um, element of that path, or sometimes it's called the spoke of a wheel, the wheel of the Dharma that is turning all the time, whether we know it or not, um, is called right view. And sometimes it's, it's translated variously, sometimes right view, sometimes right understanding. But I, I like the word view uh, because it has that visual element to it, the way you see the world, uh, the position that you take relative to, to others, to the world in general. But I want to say something, um, actually take a different view of the Eightfold Path than perhaps is standard. The Eightfold Path is often seen as the fourth noble truth. That is, there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a way to be liberated from suffering, and this is the way, the fourth truth, the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path is the way to liberation. <clears throat> I want us to be careful about taking the Eightfold Path, the path, as a means to an end. I don't think that it is a means toward the end. In other words, if you try to have right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right um, uh, meditation, right concentration, you won't get to awakening. <laughs> that is not, there is no way to awaken. So the path doesn't lead to an end. You can't take this path to the destination of awakening. Awaken, awakening is not the result of doing all these things. As a matter of fact, it may, may be more helpful or accurate to say that this path doesn't lead to awakening. It actually leads from awakening. In other words, those people who have awakened naturally take this path. In other words, another way of looking, viewing this, is that the awakened ones the ones who have been enlightened, who are enlightened, have left a trace for us to follow, right? It's not that the awakening is at the end, but the awakening, the awakening is at the beginning in a way. So the path is the trace that the awakened ones have left us. It's already there for us 
by and has been walked by the noble ones. <laughs> Sometimes uh, we, we, I like to think of the noble, the four noble truths. It's not the truths that are that are the noble things. It's the the people are the noble ones who have discovered the truths. So the the path itself is not the no noble thing. It's those who have walked the path are the noble ones and they have left this path for us it's not that we basically create the path and then achieve something at the end it's that there it is it's 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 already there and if we are awake we naturally travel that path we actually express our nobility our our um our uprightness our goodness our perfection by naturally doing all these things so that's a, a view that i it's a different kind of view that we sometimes take on this path uh that it isn't a means to an end you cannot reach enlightenment by a strategy, by a series of steps. You just, doesn't work that way. How it works, I do not know. <laughs> I cannot tell you, but I can tell you that Zazen is a good choice. <laughs> it, it's, it's something that it's a way that uh, has worked for over 2,600 years. So there probably is something to it. I'm not going to go as far back as Ross did last week, like three billion years. <laughs> I don't know if it's worked for that long. <laughs> but but it, it, it has been known to be effect, an effective way to discover our enlightened, our awakened nature. So. Um, Right view is where you stand. It's the way you see things. Um, it's your position, it's your attitude, how you look, how you look at things. Right view doesn't so much have to do with what you see, but how you see it, how you relate to it. In other words, you can have a view that is, you could say, correct in some way. But if, it, if your attitude toward it is attached, then it's not right view. So, so right view has to do with the way you see things. And the suffering comes from your attachment to your view, not necessarily the right thing to see, because there is no right thing to see. Each situation is different, but when you grasp onto, I mean, you, your views change because causes and conditions change. And so if you attach to a certain view, you're going to suffer because 
causes and conditions are going to change and your view is probably going to have to change. However, we today in our recitation of the Loving Kindness Sutra, at the end of that sutra, it says, not holding to fixed views. Not holding to fixed views. So right view, speaking generally, is a view that you don't hold onto. Now, I suspect that most of us walk around and every day with a lot of fixed views. We may not be aware of them, but they are. We sometimes call them preconceptions, um, biases, uh, expectations that things are going to be what we believe them to be. And so we go around with these, I'm going to call them preconceptions or fixed views about the world, about people, about circumstances. We, every time we expect a person to be the way they have been, the way we, we think of them, we have a fixed view. And according to our practice, we have to let go, let go of the fixed views. That is very, very hard to do because fixed views make, make us feel like we're in control. Like we know we've got a hold on, on life. You know, we, we're the master, we're the master and mistress of the world and we can predict we know what's going on. And so it gives us a sense of power, these fixed views. And that makes us feel strong. Yeah, we, we, we know what to expect. Uh, and usually things, things for some reason always turned out like if, we, <laughs> if we're a liberal Democrats and we watch MSNBC, yeah, this is the world the way the world is. Or if we're, you know, on the right conservative um, right view, you know, oh, we watch Fox. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the way the world is, right? So we have a way of confirming our fixed views by limiting our involvement with the world. So what often happens when we don't examine our fixed views, when we don't even realize we have them, is that these views turn into biases that severely limit our capacity for growth, for adaptation, for creativity. And when, the more we hold on to them, the more we're going to suffer, as I said, because conditions and causes and people are constantly changing and, and they're going to challenge us. And we have to, we have to hold more and more 
onto the, that view because they'll be constantly challenged. And so what happens is that we can become more fanatic because we sense that our views are being threatened by changing situations. And so oh, we hold on even more powerfully and our biases become very rigid and we don't want to listen to expose ourselves to anything else, anything that would challenge our view. Very, very dangerous uh, situation to be in. So there are, in speaking of these biases, these fanaticisms, there are actually 50 kinds of biases that severely limit our capacity to be liberated, to learn, to grow, to be creative. I'm going to give you a couple of them, which um, you might discover secretly hiding <laughs> in your own life. One I mentioned was the confirmation bias. Obviously, you know, you're going to look for things that corroborate, confirm your bias. Just as I said, you know, if I mean, I can't watch Fox News because they don't confirm my bias. Uh, and so it's wonderful to watch CNN or M MSNBC because they, they just go along <laughs> with my view of the world, right? And I don't associate with people who don't share my views, who don't share my values. I cannot stand to be around them. <laughs> I want to be around people who confirm my beliefs, right? And so I hang out with uh, you guys. <laughs> with Buddhists as much as I possibly can. <laughs> So, I mean, there's something wonderful about that, <laughs> but uh, it also severely limits your openness to the world, your, your big view, your boundless, boundless view, in a way, your no view, your no view at all. I mean, we could say that right view is no view. Uh, Although we always have to have a view because we have a position in the world. So we have to make decisions and we have to have a view. We have to have a place where we stand, but not attached, not attached to it. And that's hard. So then we have this hindsight bias. We know this as only other people do this, not me. Um, I knew it. I, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. I knew that I knew the world was going to be this way. I always knew it. I was always, always cued into it. So this bias that 
somehow we had a secret uh, connection with the way events unfolded. And oh yeah, I predicted that. <laughs> that, that couldn't have happened. I mean, it, it probably was a coincidence that things turned out the way you predicted them, but you didn't have any secret key to the way things were going to unfold. But that's a bias that, that you can believe that has no merit at all in, in reality. The blind spot bias, that is, you can see how other people violate some value. <laughs> but you, you don't see it in yourself, <laughs> you know? It's like, oh yeah. And I usually find that everything that bothers me about somebody else, you know, it's like this, this finger points, the one finger points that way and the four other fingers <laughs> point this way. But we have a blind spot, you know, we're, we we're biased toward seeing the faults in others and we have a blind spot about not seeing it in ourselves. The self-justifying bias. We talked a little bit about this in book study. The people who always find, find that you have to defend yourself you're always, oh yeah, you know, there's a, re it's called rationalization. I did this, I looked at it this way, but there are reasons for it. Uh, you know, I can explain why, you know, I took this position. And you're always justifying yourself. I was wrong, but X, Y, and Z. So that kind of... <clears throat> defensiveness that we can find in ourselves that that we're always justifying ourselves instead of as uchiyama roshi says <laughs> when you discover you, you somehow you've been unskillful or you haven't seen things clearly instead of just shutting up and dying in effect <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> I'm wrong, you know, <laughs> or just being silent, just shutting up and dying. You defend yourself. You have to defend yourself instead of just accepting. You know, I was unskillful. I didn't see things clearly. So that you can find that in yourself, I bet. And then um, there are lots of them, but one of the ones that is very often uh, appears is the negativity bias. And that, that actually, in some sense, is hardwired into us because from an evolutionary point of view, we were always on the lookout for threats to our survival. So we're looking for the, the, the negatives. Uh, what, what do I need to be afraid of? You know, what do I need to protect against? But for the most part in our lives, there are not very many things anymore that uh, are deeply threatening our survival. And yet we still have a tendency to look to the negative rather than the so-called positive. 
uh, we're fixated on, on that. There's a wonderful little anecdote about a pessimist and an optimist on a train. They meet each other in the dining car of a train. They're going somewhere. And they're having their lunch together and they're sharing their views of the world. I mean, one is absolutely the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's life is horrible. It's sounds like a Buddhist, you know, everything is suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> dukkha. And the pessim- the optimist, of course, is huh, the, the world is beautiful. You look around you, every you know, just constantly being called bright siding, seeing the seeing the positive positive in everything. And so they say, well, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's have an experiment here. We'll take this piece of bread, and we'll butter it. And we'll throw it up in the air. And if it lands butter side down, pessimism wins. (laughs) If it lands butter side up, optimism wins. Throw it up in the air, lands butter side up. And the optimist says, look, look, you know, look, I won. And the pessimist says, you buttered the wrong side. <laughs> so there's fixed views. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We always turning things into a negative. Okay. So there are at least, you can look this up online. Look at everything. I don't even have to give a talk. <laughs> Just look up Dharma talks. <laughs> so so um, there are at least 50 of these. Uh, they're called cognitive and emotional biases. They're fascinating. And I suspect that you can find yourself participating in every single one of them in one form or another. So how can we let go of these fixed views? Of course, one of the ways is through zazen. That is, we begin to understand, look inward, and find all this stuff inside of us that is creating distress uh, that doesn't have any foundation in reality and that those fixed views can start to evaporate. I mean, it doesn't happen immediately, although sometimes it can. Sometimes you, you can just discover you let go of something you've been holding onto uh, either through your own internal exploration or somebody, for example, that you've held a very strong fixed view about surprises you, really acts in a very different way than you had expected, that you always believed this person to act. And similarly in circumstances. So one of the, one of the ways in which I, I address my fixed views is I ask 
the question, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> and I usually have to respond, no. I'm not sure. I'm not absolutely, I mean, there's really nothing that I'm absolutely certain about. I don't know, maybe there is something that you're absolutely certain about that contradicts what I've just said. Um, I'd be interested in hearing it. Um, so that is a question that can accompany you when you find your, you become aware that you are, that you have a fixed view about something, even Buddhism. That, you know, we say, if you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha. And that's not to be taken literally. I mean, even literally, you can't do it because you can't see the Buddha. So, but, but the idea is if, you, if the Buddha becomes visible, if, if that becomes hardened into dogma or into a view, then kill it. The notion here is to have a flexible, pliable, boundless mind so that you can see things clearly. You can be present to what is actually presenting itself to you without the filter of your fixed view, that you can actually be present to what is presenting itself. So that question, Mato, are you sure? It's usually, no, and that, that's a kind of wake up immediately. It's like, no, let me pay attention to this person. <laughs> um, I, I, not have that fixed view interfering with my being present to that person. So um, I very much like, and I've used many, many times, this word provisional. I think it's such a wonderful word because it doesn't do away with having a view that's not what our practice is about. It's not about not taking a position or just being like a, a lava lamp, you know, where you just kind of, <laughs> you never really settle on anything. Um, it's not not caring or just being whatever, you know, just being the kind of person that says whatever. That, that's not our practice. We do take a position. We do have to make decisions and, and, and we do have to have confidence in them, but provisional. For this time, this place, this person, these sets of conditions, this action, but not forever, <laughs> mm -hmm. not always. Maybe ch changing, 
definitely changing. Things will always change. And my position is not fanatic. It's not holding so fast to my belief, nor is it no position at all. This is the middle way is provisional. It's a clear position. I'm acting with the best understanding, with the best sense of being present to the circumstances. But I withhold judgment until the next set of circumstances and my knowledge and my experience increase and deepen. And I might have a very different understanding and action to take. So I love this word provisional. I'm going to end with um, one of my favorite binge worthy television series is Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> Always cracks me <laughs> Yes, it's it's profound, really. I, I definitely would love to do a whole year of Dharma talks on Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, it's a sutra. You've got to study it. Um, there's one uh, line in Breaking Bad, which is um, a consequence of. Uh, Jesse and Walter White, the two main characters, um, have two very unpleasant tasks to perform. One is killing somebody <laughs> and the other is uh, cleaning up a lot of debris from their uh, methamphetamine operation. Neither one of them wants to do either one of those things. So they flip a coin and they decide, you know, who has who ha tell, tails, who has heads, and the one who wins chooses which of these two obnoxious tasks they want to do. That works out. But the one, Walter White, who was supposed to kill this guy, fails to do it. He can't bring himself to do it. And Jesse uh, realizes that Walter White can't do this. And Walter White tries to kind of do the uh, self-justifying bias. And Jesse says, we flipped a coin. That is sacred. <laughs> what a line. We flipped a coin. That's sacred. I thought, wow, what does that mean? <laughs> Why is flipping a coin sacred? And I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you. Let's return our, we can talk about this at tea. <laughs> <laughs>